Acts chapter 7. We're continuing to look at Stephen's speech this morning. And today we're going to pull out of it those few occasions, seven or eight times, when Stephen ascribes some particular action to God. Obviously, it's a history speech. Most of what he tells us is what human beings did at various times. But here and there, including right at the beginning, Stephen pulls out something and says, God specifically, specially, did this action. So we're going to look at God in history and how Stephen applies that, the warning that he gives to us at the end about God acting in history to save and to judge. So let's read Acts 7. We'll read just the beginning, and then we'll look at a couple of the other key verses where Stephen ascribed something to God. Acts 7, verse 2, he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran, and from there when his father was dead, God moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on, but even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would sojourn in a foreign land, that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. And then turning ahead to verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to them in the who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. But verse 41, they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you act in history. Help us to see your action and to learn from it. To learn from it, to fear you to walk with you, to honor you, to know that your kingdom is real, that it reigns. Help us to submit to that reign. Father, give us freedom from distraction this morning. Turn our hearts toward the truth as it is in Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, the majority of us in here over the age of 10 were not born in Gillette. And therefore, I can ask you the question, how did you end up moving to Gillette? What brought you here? How much of it was you? How much of it was God? 
And some of you would have the answer and say, it was totally God because I was fighting the whole time. Most of us would say, I don't know how much of it was me and how much of it was God. That's, that's kind of all tangled up. And in fact, from the human side, we can't disentangle the natural and the supernatural. From the human side, there's no way to go and say, well, this was my part of the decision and this was God's part of the decision. But Stephen gives us a little window into the divine side. From God's side, we can say definitively, this was all God. God did this. And that's what Stephen does on at least seven different occasions through this speech. The Almighty's intervention in Israel's history, as detailed by Stephen, warns us today to serve God with reverence and fear. Because if you don't, he will give you up to your sin. The story of God's intervention in Israel's history culminates with a warning. Don't give yourself over to sin. Stephen starts these comments in verse 4. Abraham came out of the land of Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. From there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. That he is not Abraham moved himself. That's God moved Abraham. Now, that's not exactly how Genesis portrays it. Genesis emphasizes the faith of Abraham, the man who left Haran, stepped out boldly and said, I'm going to go to a place far from my kindred, from my family, from my father's house. I'm going to leave behind everything I ever had and knew. Only my nephew will come with me. And I will go to this new land called Canaan. I have no idea what it is, where it is, what I'm going to do when I get there. But God said to go, and so I'll go. Abraham, the man of faith. Well, Stephen skips all that, and he focuses on it from the other side. Abraham didn't move himself to Canaan. God brought him into this land. What is Stephen trying to say? Well, he's harking back to Adam, created outside the garden and brought into the garden. So here's Abraham, created, born, outside the promised land, brought into the promised land, not by his own two feet, but by the power of God. What's the point? We don't deserve the garden. The garden is not our birthright, the promised land is not our natural home. Well, yeah, I'm born here and I've been here my whole life. No, Abraham was born outside the promised land and it's only by the grace and power of God that he enters the promised land. How much more then is heaven not a place to achieve? I climbed up here with my own two arms. No, God brought you into heaven. We've all been born outside heaven. Even if we had a West Virginian in our midst, someone who was almost from heaven, we would not truly have been born in heaven. No human person is. To get to heaven is a gift. God brings you there. So already at the outset of his speech, Stephen is emphasizing God's role in Israel's history. 
Israel, you didn't get yourself into this promised land any more than Abraham got himself into this promised land. God brought him here. And therefore, God can kick him out. God brought you to Jerusalem, built the temple, moved in with you. He can leave. He can kick you out. That's where Stephen's speech is going, and he already is laying the groundwork for that right here in verse 4. Verse 5, again, God promises the land. Even when Abraham, well, God gave him no inheritance, Abraham no, had no son. So what does God do? He promised to give it to Abraham for a possession and to his seed after him. The God who calls things that are not as though they were says, you're childless and you own no land. Here's my promise, Abraham. You will leave all your land to your child. Any of you been in an awkward conversation with an infertile couple where you managed to drop something about, oh, if you had a child, the child might do blah, blah, blah. And then gotten that dirty look. Like, I can't believe you just talked about it to me about that. Maybe Abraham was a little sensitive on this subject of not having a child. God wasn't interested in coddling Abraham's feelings. He's interested in saying, Abraham, you have no child. Your child will inherit everything. You have no land. Your child will inherit the land. Again, right? It's not the people of God who earn the land for themselves. It's not that Abraham was some kind of self-made robber baron who managed to acquire a large strip of the eastern Mediterranean coastline. God takes a landless man and promises him land. He takes a childless man and promises him children. The God who rules the future makes promises today based on events that are still far in the future. Here's where the faith of Abraham comes to the fore in Stephen's telling. Can you trust God today for what he's going to do hundreds or thousands of years from now? Can you live your life today based on something that has not happened yet and may not happen in your lifetime? That's the challenge that was put before the people of God in that era, and that's the challenge that's before the people of God Today, we aren't in heaven. We don't yet see everything subjected to Christ. We don't see the kingdom here in its fullness and glory. So do we live as kingdom citizens? When Satan's kingdom is all around us and offers us an alternative way of life that lots of people are practicing, seemingly with halfway decent results in a lot of cases. Trust God for this life and the next, for the final judgment and its outcome. It comes thick and fast here what God would do. Verse 7, the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. The ten plagues, God judged Egypt when it enslaved his people. The message for us in the bad news and disasters of our own day, do we see the hand of God as judge? Or is it just bad luck? 
bad leadership, bad politicians. Now, yes, we can have bad leadership, bad politicians, bad people who deserve bad things. But behind all of that, Egypt, the Egyptians needed to see the hand of God as judge. And so do we. To get our eyes off, I can't believe that so-and-so made such a horrible mistake. And on to, God judges. God sends bad consequences on nations that harm and oppress his people. Well, verse 10, God makes Joseph governor. God gave Joseph favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh. We're on board with that. Yeah. Pharaoh sees Joseph. Pharaoh likes Joseph. Joseph tells Pharaoh what the future holds. Pharaoh believes it. Makes him ruler. Except that's not what Stephen says. God made Joseph governor over Egypt and all Pharaoh's house. Yes, it was through Pharaoh's own free choice. God was at work there. God set that up. God brought Joseph into Egypt and gave him that position. That doesn't rule out or exclude the divine work that set Joseph over the household of Pharaoh. So Stephen is challenging the audience. Again, who sets up rulers? Who puts people in charge? And therefore, who can say, you're no longer in charge? And he's challenging us. Where are you going to look for security in this world? What do you think? Should you be laying up treasure in heaven or building political capital on earth? Which is more important long term? Is our goal to please God or to feather our nest and cover our rear? It's not how Joseph became governor of Egypt. was by doing either of those two favorite human pastimes. He submitted to God. He trusted God. Brought him from the dungeon to the throne room. Well, turning the next page, as Stephen speeds on through Israel's history, Verse 35, God makes Moses the ruler and deliverer of the people of Israel. Israel doesn't get together and say, we're tired, it's been 430 years, let's find somebody who can lead us out of Egypt. God sets up Moses, who initially is reluctant, as we saw, Moses has five reasons why he shouldn't go. And God forces him to go and says, That's it. I've answered your five reasons. You're going now, Moses. Where does deliverance come from in this world? Yes, we can improve our lot a certain extent by organizing, getting together, making plans, engaging in political or social action. But the deliverance of God's people from Egyptian bondage came about through God raising up Moses And again, the question for us is, do you look to Jesus Christ as the ruler and deliverer God has already sent? Or are you still searching for some other Messiah who's going to bring about tax reform, criminal justice reform, prison reform, health care reform, immigration reform, or reform any one of the other numerous problems? 
that our world sees. Jesus is the answer. And so God promises a prophet like Moses in verse 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. We've already seen that verse once in Acts. It's a key text for the apostles as they try to persuade the Jewish establishment. Jesus is the prophet. Jesus is the one we have to listen to. Moses (coughs) prophesied him. Moses said he's coming. Here it is in black and white in the pages of Deuteronomy. God will raise him up. Not the high priest will raise up a prophet like Moses. Not the temple establishment will be the final arbiter. Listen to it. God reserves the right to send his Messiah who will change what you're doing. And that plays into what Stephen is doing, defending himself of this charge of speaking against Moses and announcing that the customs will be changed and the temple abolished. Stephen says, God already said he would send somebody who would have the authority to do that. Again, the message of Acts, Jesus reigns. One of the things he reigns over is the old covenant and its way of doing things. The temple establishment, the high priest, the regular priest, the Sadducees, the temple guard, everybody who runs that institution has to submit to Jesus Christ. And that's true of us too. It's easy to apply it to an old institution 2,000 years ago. It's a little harder to apply it to our own institution. Church people killed Jesus. Church people fought the apostles. Well, our church wouldn't do that. Well, by the grace of God, we won't. If we listen to what the Word of God says, and if we stay humble, repent of our own sin, and admit that we, in our opinions, are not the be-all, end-all of the Christian faith. The temple establishment couldn't do that. We are Judaism. And if an upstart preacher from Galilee comes and says we're not, then he has to go to the cross. And the same is true of every local church throughout history. That we tend to get stuck on ourselves, our way of doing things, and forget that Jesus reserves the right to upend our church. Or to tell any one of us, you're the problem in your church. Your rotten attitude, your pride... Self-absorption, conviction that you have all the answers, or that the other guy is a big threat to the church. Jesus has the right to tell us that that fixation is wrong. What happened to the Jewish church when they got stuck on that? When they believed that they could do no wrong and so they started to do whatever they wanted. Well, Stephen takes us there. 
Our fathers would not obey the angel. They wouldn't obey Jesus Christ, verse 39, but rejected, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. Egypt was better. And there are people in the church today who believe that the world is better. You can go to Facebook and easily find lots and lots of them telling their stories and explaining to you how they grew up in church and then found in the world a better morality, nicer people, kinder folks, better way of living, and either they've left the church behind for good or their idea is to reform the church along the lines of the world and make it more in tune with the spirit of the age. That is exactly what Moses had to deal with a few weeks after leaving Egypt in the golden calf incident. We came out of slavery. Slavery was better than this. Let's go back to Egypt. So in their hearts, they return to Egypt. They make a golden calf and rejoice in the works of their own hands. And then these chilling words, then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. We saw it in Psalm 81. My people would not listen to my voice. Israel would have none of me. So I gave them up to their heart's lust and they followed their own counsels. It can happen to a single local church, to an entire denomination, to a whole group of denominations. This idea of going in your heart away from Jesus, back towards whatever it is that the world offers. And then God typically punishes that sin with the further sin, well, He just lets you have your way. God gave them up to worship the host of heaven. The Bible doesn't tell us where this point is exactly. It just warns us that it's there. If you say, this sin is okay. This sin is not too bad. I can indulge in a certain amount of lust, sloth, gluttony, pride, anger, or name your own deadly sin. I can keep this much bitterness in my heart. This much self-righteousness in the back closet to pull out and beat my spouse over the head with when she messes up. As long as you say that, you're cruising for the point where God will give you up. And in Israel's case, Stephen is saying it happened essentially to the whole people. Your entire church, your entire denomination has been handed over to do whatever they want. That's a warning to every denomination, to every church. Stephen winds up with that, essentially. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? You received the law by the direction of angels and did not keep it. Our responsibility is greater the more truth we know. And if you're ignorant, you can't go as wrong as somebody who knows a lot. 
Stephen warns the people with this, and yet they hear that, they get mad, they stone him. And his final words are, Father, forgive them. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. What is he saying? Don't ever say, well, God gave me up. Guess I'm done for now. Let me go ahead and double down on my favorite sin. There is always a path of repentance, even though it's also true that at a certain point, God gives you up. We don't know where the point of being given up is. We don't know exactly where the path of repentance ends, if we could say so. But Stephen both tells the people, God gave you up. He worked in history. He brought you to where you are. And now he lets you go to worship all kinds of idols. And he says, Father, please forgive them for stoning me. So we need to have this same attitude, this same fear of sin, the same realization that God can give us up to our sin. And also an attitude of, I'm never going to give up, I'm never going to conclude that somebody is so far gone that they can't be saved and that I shouldn't forgive them and ask God to forgive them. We have to hold both these truths. Jesus leaves the 99 and goes after the one. God acts in history. We won't always know what he's doing. What part of what is his working? What's natural things, providence, other human beings, angels? But we know this. There's a promised land of heaven. There's judgment on the wicked. There's salvation for those who repent of their sins, the formerly wicked, who go to God and ask for forgiveness. God acts in history. Believe Him. Trust Him. Know His salvation. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would help us to know You as the God who works in history and who saves Your people. Lord, open our hearts to understand that we don't deserve the promised land but to believe your promise that you call things that don't yet exist as though they did exist. Bring us safely to that heavenly kingdom, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.